This podcast is recorded on stolen and unceded Aboriginal land. We acknowledge the First Nations and elders of this country and we join their calls for justice. Howdy, Danger Dogs. It's me, Tom Ballard here, co-host of the Serious Danger podcast, this podcast about green politics in Australia. It's not an official Greens Party podcast. It's made help with the Green Institute and is produced by Michael the Griff Griffin, the man himself. Uh, I'm back here to bring you our big fat chat with Max Chandler Mather and comedian Geraldine Hickey live on stage recorded at the Good Chat Comedy Club in Mianjin, Brisbane in the great state of Greensland, which happened one week ago. It was the one year anniversary of the 2022 federal election. We were live on stage in beautiful Greensland in front of an amazing crowd. It was such a fun afternoon. Uh, as you might have heard, unfortunately, Emerald could not join us for that show, which was a major bummer, but we love and miss Emerald and we know that she's going to be okay. She's going to be back on the show soon. Um, yes, said so to you, much love and positive vibes, comrade. Uh, this chat was fascinating. It was <laughs> it was the most wonky, <laughs> lots of laughs as well, but we went deep on housing policy. We had Max chandler the Greens Party spokesperson for housing policy on the stage. This debate is raging around Labor's shitty housing afford- housing affordability future, Housing Australia Future Fund. God, I can't even remember. The half. And I had all these questions to run by Max to really get into the nitty gritty. And Max was on one. Fresh, warming up for his appearance on Q&A earlier this week, he was ready to inspire, blast through Labor's bullshit and explain his vision for a better world and for housing justice. It was awesome. And we think you're going to get a lot out of this chat. Uh, thank you again to everybody who came along. Thank you to dear patrons who support the show. We released more of this chat. My funny chat with Jordan Hickey was released as a Patreon bonus app earlier in this week. If you want to get that kind of bonus content, just go to patreon.com forward slash serious danger AU. You can be a patron for just three bucks a month. That's fantastic value. Uh, enjoy this conversation. We'll be back next week with a weekly app looking through, picking through the news stories of the week. As always, you can send us an email. Hello at serious or hit us up on the socials across Twitter, on uh, YouTube, on Instagram, on TikTok. You know the deal. We're serious danger. We're going viral. We're the next big thing. All right. Over to me introducing Max at our live show in Brisbane last week. Hit it. Oh, my gosh. We're going to bring up our next guest to the microphone. He was elected as the Greens MP for the seat of Griffith exactly one year ago today. He's recently teamed up with Peter Dutton to torpedo housing. He has a massive ego. He loves the spotlight and fetishizes poor people. He hates the working class. Give it up for Max Chandler. <laughs> Hello, Max. Hello. What'd you think of that intro, eh? Yeah, I thought the ABC was hostile. <laughs> <laughs> now, you're warming up. You're doing Q&A tomorrow night. I am. You Q&A. pumped? Oh, hugely. Absolutely. I hope they give me the same intro in Q&A. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they'll be quite kind. Have you been watching old episodes to, uh, to boat up and get ready? Uh... I don't know. This is—is is this podcast going to air before Q and A? Because I haven't watched an episode of Q and A in <clears throat> a long time. <laughs> but I'm a, if I'm asked, I'm a big fan of the show. Okay, great. <laughs> Fucking politicians, <laughs> saying whatever we want to hear. <laughs> um, you're also a TikTok superstar. I should have said, of course, recently going viral with your, your big speech about housing. We'll get to that in a sec. But of course, a year ago today, you were elected as the goddamn new uh, Greens MP for Griffith. Uh, what are your memories of uh, election night 2022? Uh, not believing we'd won until several days afterwards. Really? I think I had um, several people trying to convince me that we'd won, and I spent most of the time refusing to believe it. So you needed to get out in the sun. You needed to get out in the sunshine and see the wombats. <laughs> <in the kidneys. laughs> 
was screaming at me. You won! You won! When did you... Uh, ex- no, it was amazing. It was a, um, a delirious night. Uh, and a lot of people here, I, I think, were probably at that party. But it felt like the culmination of just years and years of hard yakka. And yeah. for it to pay off on that night. And it felt like this little crack, you know, of hope had appeared. Uh, and, um, no, I still think back to that night and think about... It's a good way to remember that a lot of the hard work that you do and everyone here does... Uh, is worth it for nights like that. Fuck yeah. Did Terry Butler call you to concede? Uh, no, never. I, I got an email, which he, subse- <laughs> um, which he subsequently posted on Twitter. <laughs> New comment. <laughs> um, how's been your first year in, in Parliament, being an MP? What, how have you found it? Bits of it are good, bits of it less good. I mean... Um, if you've ever watched Question Time on television, uh, in person it's about 50 times worse. Um, so there's that. And that uh, at one point Libby, uh, like Libby Watson-Brown, who I'm sure lots of you know, lent over to me during a Question Time, was like, do you reckon if we worked out the average hourly wage of a politician and then extended it for Question Time, we'd work out how much this country's wasting every, <laughs> every Question Time at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and what we could spend it on otherwise. But, look, uh, lots of it are really cool. Um, it's... Um, completely bizarre uh, getting to talk about a lot of the stuff we've been talking about in Queensland Mm. uh, in Parliament uh, and knowing that, you know, you're there speaking on behalf of lots of people. You get all these resources of an office we get to use for running free breakfast programs and stuff like that. So, no, it's in many ways has been fantastic, but sometimes a little bit tiring. (laughs) It seems like... So there's a lot of... being The experience of actually being there for a year is a lot of it confirmed all the shit, the, the ideas that you had about what Parliament, how broken it is. But were you surprised by anything as well? Like, how, how have you sort of had your, your preconceived ideas about what being in Parliament was like? Challenged? The, the first night I was there, we, like, um, because it's actually a really maze-like building and um, uh, Maddie and I were lost, a uh, staff member, and we were, like, managed to make it to the mural hall, which is, like, the big central bit of the building. And we could, we could hear uh, Al- Albanese's voice off in the distance. We're like, is that him? And we were walking through this, like, very exclusive part of Parliament where only like politicians and other staffers are meant to be and lobbyists. And we turned the corner on this big banner that said Business Council. And then there was the Prime Minister standing up and giving this like private talk to the entirety of the Business Council and was like, oh yeah, no, this checks out. This is <laughs> it's about everything you expect. I mean, the um, yeah, I, and perhaps the other unsurprising thing is like you're wandering around the building. It's just constantly lobbyists wandering in and around the building. They're, like it's so... Scott Morrison was wrong about everything but the Canberra bubble. Like, it, it, um, it, it's amazing how it uh, is almost specifically designed as a building to detach you from reality. Uh, and uh, the only other people you come into contact with are some of the most despicable people involved in public life, um, excluding my wonderful Greens colleagues, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and so, yeah, like, a lot of that, it is grading, you know? Like, and um, I, I think it's a really... It's been a fantastic lesson for me about A, how power works in this country, but B, why it's so important to remain connected to your electorate and the movement that got you there. Um, Because it is, you can feel it working on you by the minute. Because Albanese's been there since 1996, right? Like, so if you've been there for most of his life, he doesn't have the same perspective as sort of the fresh eyes that you come into this place thinking about how cooked this is. I assume that he thinks, oh, the system works pretty well. We just got to do it in the right sort of labor way, you know? Yeah, that's right. I'm not sure what he thinks, to be honest. But um, I, that seems like a kind reading. I, I don't think they think. <laughs> uh, no, you're right. He's a dumb cum. Uh, <laughs> No, sorry to steal your material, Jess. Uh, you can have that. No problem. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I, you probably can't say that because you're negotiating with him on stuff. But uh... 
yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, via pieces of paper in Parliament, we hand each other to, we don't ever speak. <laughs> oh, I can't wait to find out what was on that piece of paper. Yeah. I'd ask you something. Just before you move on, on the election, I, I, people might have seen this story that was uh, kicking around this morning. We were talking about this backstage, Max. The Australian is writing a piece on how the election would have turned out differently if Australia had a first-past-the-post system. And, guys, it would have gone a totally different way. It's the untold tale of last year's election. Yeah, because no one fucking cares. The, the untold tale. The coalition won 73 seats, one more than Labor, and with two conservative-leaning crossbenchers returning to Parliament, Scott Morrison looked a chance of forming a minority government. Oh, it's untold, of course, because it didn't happen. <laughs> In reality, Labour cruised to power, securing a narrow majority, and Anthony Albanese became the 31st person to hold the office of Prime Minister. But apply a different voting system to the actual votes cast, and the political landscape of the 47th Parliament would have been strikingly different from what the nation's preferential voting system delivered. So if everything was different, things would be different. Amazing analysis. Amazing analysis. They did say that we would have lost Griffith, which was just factually wrong. Like, we won on the primary. So, you know, politics is wish fulfilment, but obviously also that little step further, it's like, what happens if we had a third past the post system? Because they were like, oh, um, Labor would have won Griffith, but Labor finished third in Griffith. So, yeah. you know, and that's also an interesting voting system. If we did, although, you know, this is a bit of a dunk on the Greens, but if we did have a third past the post voting system, there'd be a Greens majority government right now. So. <laughs> New campaign just dropped. <laughs> Electoral reform now. But, and it's framed as if there is some massive debate in Australia about ele- preferential voting and the first-past-the-post system, which does not fucking exist. No, it's completely bizarre. I, I, I think it's like it's their feigned attempt to delegitimise Labor. And, you know, the one bit of, like, small, I think by accident truth they've got is it's true to say that the, both the major parties' votes are declining. You know, like, Labor got did get under a third of the national vote. Yeah. Uh, and uh, if they want to have a talk, you know, a chat about... Uh, changes to the electoral system. There are ways to change it, but uh, you know, this. I think this is just the odds up to their same old dirty tricks. But uh, or also just trying to make it say we'd lose Griffith, even though we absolutely wouldn't have, regardless of the voting system, except for third past the post. <laughs> <laughs> but just we won Griffith. Is that right? We won. The, we won yes. the two Griffith. Yeah. Okay. Great. Okay. Gotta go. Gotta go. Just to clarify that. All right, you are the uh, party's uh, housing spokesperson. We've been hanging on to this chat for a long time. Housing is obviously a massive issue constantly, but also this really salient political issue at the moment. And I would like to spend a little bit of time on this Sunday afternoon as we drink beers, talking in granular detail about housing policy. What do you reckon, everybody? Yes! (laughs) Not enough claps. All right, well, I've prepared nothing else, so here we go. Um, you are so great at talking about this, Max. Everyone is very familiar with just how dog shit and how um, acute the housing crisis is. It has been for a very long time, but now more than ever. It's mainly caused by Geraldine Hickey. Um, <laughs> and I feel like this is a good place for you to address these sort of um, okay, these rumours that yeah. you're basically cooking the housing market, Jess. Yeah. I've got a few properties. <laughs> All the goodwill. You hear that? <laughs> You're doing stand-up about this. I believe someone heckled you quite intensely yeah, about this. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 So I, I, my wife and I recently bought a house um, and it's our third property. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, but if, like, if it makes you feel any different, all three properties combined are, are not enough to buy a house in a capital city of Australia. Um, but, um, I, you know, in the job, I go, I'll go it's actually our third property and then I go, what's... What's the vibe on that? Um, and a woman in Adelaide <laughs> just yelled out, Capitalist pig dog! <laughs> um, 
And, like, it shocked her. <laughs> like, went, it just came out? Yeah, it just came out. And she went, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, oh, don't be. That's – capitalist pig dog is – oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Put that on a T-shirt. Yeah. Fuck, that's know, the next year's show. Sell them, make some more money. Um, anyway. <laughs> likability is very strong <laughs> to get through this is amazing oh, no. now you're not a landlord right you, you no. some of them are empty no there's a there's a beach house there's a place in melbourne and a place outside of melbourne as well yeah. you're commuting to maui you go to melbourne a lot so you're living in there and you do help out a mate with the place in melbourne a little bit yeah so yeah um so yeah i've got the place in melbourne which i use because my wife works out in the Latrobe Valley, so we bought a house out there. Um, obviously, very privileged and lucky to be able to do that. Um, and well, we've got the beach house, and um, we could have sold that, but we're not idiots. And, um, <laughs> so, and and the beach house. I'm sorry, but we do have it on Airbnb sometimes, but. <laughs> And I know that's the worst. Get the car ready, guys. I think Jess is going to have to... She's not going to make it out of here alive. I know that's the worst, but it's all, it's in a holiday destination and uh, there is low um, low amount of people actually looking for rentals in this place where we're living. So justify it that way. <laughs> and, um, but it is, you know, it is, as, a, as a Greens voter, it's, you know, we do grapple with, you know, having these been in this situation and also yeah i've got an apartment in melbourne and we have a friend that is essentially homeless he's got a van and he has lots of house sitting and stuff so um he just stays there when when i'm not in town but when i'm in town i'll go get in your van (laughs) (laughs) i don't really i don't really question to you should geraldine go to jail Look, as long as Geraldine gives those houses up to the People's Party, the Greens, <laughs> um, absolutely oh, none. Okay. We'll look kindly on you after the revolution. Yeah. I mean, I'm a bit... Because my brother and I bought the apartment that I live in too, but we also rent out one of the rooms, so I'm technically a live-in landlord. <laughs> I don't know. What am I supposed to do? Why, why is that bad, though? Isn't that okay if you live there? Max! <laughs> look, you know, I can't be here to absolve you of all your sins. Fuck! <laughs> That's why I invited you, you can't. But are you are you like the the um person in that room, are they paying all of your mortgage? Absolutely not, no. That's it's all very right, reasonable rent, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and they I only have to do my washing once a week, you know? Yeah. It's very it's a really good This honestly feels like a lefty like therapy session. <laughs> oh well that's how I've approached it. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, my name's Tom. I'm a living landlord. And sometimes I forget my green bag. I'm sorry. No, let's... Oh, sorry. No, no. No, no, you don't. I've I've done it already. (laughs) Um, Okay, the Housing Australia Future Fund. Everyone loves it. It's the half... We're all talking about it. Um, we're going to talk about the policy uh, stuff and the, we'll get to the politics in a sec too. But, you know, you posted this uh, awesome video on your Instagram this week, um, Max, sort of running through exactly how cooked this fund is. And you sort of said it's not actually a thing that's going to build in more houses. It's really just a bunch of weird bank accounts. Can you sort of, you know, briefly as much as you can, give us the, the, the basic, the, the big picture um, take on the half and how, why it's so cooked and why we should be, why the Greens are pushing against it so much? I've been trying for a while to like sum it up in a sentence, which is difficult, obviously, but it is literally not a thing that builds houses. It is, as I described, like not only just a weird set of bank accounts, 
but it's just this sort of like spinning wheel that occasionally might spit out some cash, but most of the time won't. So basically all it is, is they're going to get $10 billion of public money and then they're going to put it in what's called the future fund, which is basically Peter Costello set it up, designed, sit there to meet originally the government's superannuation uh, commitments. Super boring. Uh, but their proposal is to use that and then say, well, uh, where it makes a big enough return, uh, we'll spend some of it on housing. Now, you've probably heard me point out before that last year the future fund lost 1.2%, so it would have lost $120 million last year. Uh, and then actually in December this year, it lost 3.7%. There's a big article, right, in the, uh, a really exciting and fun paper to read, the Australian Financial Review. Um, and this is getting more and more exciting. Uh, and where um, the headline is something like, Future Fund Loses $7 Billion. Like that's, and then like, it cuts to Peter Costello and he's like, you know, this is a pretty good year for us. <laughs> and he's like, and then his line is, because Super Fund's lost 10%, you know, so... We lost less than that. <laughs> and it's like, okay, so that's their thing. Now, you know, they then say, and then this, the crazy thing is that even in a year where it makes a return, if it made a loss last year, one of the rules of this dumb fuck fund, sorry, is so stupid, is it then has to use some of its returns it makes in a good year to make up for the bad year. To make sure the fund stays at $10 billion. Right. So it is completely bizarre. Okay, then it might spit out some cash into one of three weird bank accounts. We're not exactly sure how they're going to spend that money. And then they say uh, it can only spend up to $500 million a year and they claim it's going to build 30,000 houses over five years, uh, which it's not. If you break it down, $500 million a year for five years means the house would have to cost $72,000 to build the house. And, like, look, can, if someone can come and talk to me if you can build a house for $72,000 after this, that'd be sick. Um, so that, that's the entirety of the plan. Now, the thing they say is this is our long-term plan for housing. Like, this isn't their, like, oh, um, you know, this is just one... You know, they keep saying this is just their one, one of many things they're doing. It's, like, which is barely true. Uh, and then... Uh, but they say this is, this is going to be in perpetuity. Now, the final cook thing, and there's a lot of cook things here... Uh, is uh, so because you can't build a house for $72,000, including land, um, their thing is like, well, actually what we're going to do is we're going to say, all right, community housing provider, you have to go find all the money and the land and everything to build the house. And then what we'll do is for the next 25 years, we'll pay you a little subsidy payment. Now, the way they've costed it, is that if they even if they reach their goal, which they will not, to say to get all right, we'll have thirty thousand homes, and on each of those homes, we'll be paying like a fifteen thousand, twenty thousand dollars subsidy on it for twenty five years. Literally by the end of the five years, all the fund will be doing is generating maybe a return to pay the subsidy on a set of homes, and not be able to build a single extra home after that. Literally, we'll have just kept, got ten billion dollars we could have used to just build homes. And it'll be sitting there with Peter Costello, who in a good year, he's like, oh, we only lost $7 billion this year. Um, like, I'm good at my job. Um, and, then, uh, and then it will just be stuck there, off to the side, and we won't be able to touch it. Now, that's their plan. Now, obviously, it doesn't do anything for renters. Uh, the shortage of social and affordable housing is 640,000 homes across the country. And that's households. So it's over 1.2 million people. Uh, and... Uh, they say at best they'll be able to build 6,000 homes a year, which it will not, by the way. Like, I, it's not clear it will build a single home until after 2025. And look, yeah, we, um, the, we're frustrated because often the media will report it as a $10 billion housing fund. 
Uh, and like, it, it's clear what, what they're actually trying to do. What they're trying to do is make it sound like they're doing something when they're not. Because yeah. you hear $10 billion fund for housing and you think, great, $10 billion on housing, whereas it's actually $10 billion on like Adani and Woodside shares and maybe spend some money on housing in 2026. Uh, and the reason they're doing it is because they don't want to spend money up front building housing, which is really... Actually, even Rudd did that, and I'm not a huge fan of him, but like in the last Labor government, they spent $5 billion and built a bunch of social housing. Uh, and it really is that simple. Um, obviously, theirs isn't, though. Yes. So, And the thinking behind it is, by putting a $10 billion uh, housing fund, that's budget neutral, right? So we still, the government still has the $10 billion, so they haven't actually spent the $10 billion. They've used the $10 billion to, in theory, generate more revenue to then kind of spend even not on houses. It's an entirely <laughs> an accounting trick. So, yeah, exactly. So, basically, uh, the effect on the budget is just paying the interest of them taking out a $10 billion loan. Uh, and then what they the budget it won't look like they've spent ten billion dollars because yes the ten billion dollars is an asset that the government get to hold on to it is literally just so they don't have to on the one side they can say in the budget look we're not spending that much on housing and then in the public they can say look we're spending lots on housing why are you getting upset it's like a way to gaslight the entire election. Um, but yeah I mean it, that's their that's their accounting trick the dumb stupid thing is. It, you could literally just borrow money. Like the government can borrow money at a really cheap rate. So when you go to the bank, you have to pay like 5 or 6 or 7% uh, interest on that or maybe even more. The uh, government gets to borrow at like half that. They could literally just borrow $5 billion a year, pay a really cheap interest on it, build houses, collect the subsidised rent and pay off the loans in the long term. And they could do it really quickly. It is how governments do build housing around the world. Like, it, it, it blows my mind just how overcomplicated they've made this. <laughs> so, literally, as an, basically as a comms trick. Like, it seems like most of this is designed uh, to make it look like they're doing something. And I think in their, like, comms adult brains, they forget that there's real people on the other side of this bullshit. Right. Like, I think one of the reasons they're losing this debate, which I think they are uh, over the long term, is... You might be able to say to, like, parts of the media class, I don't understand why the Greens are upset. Uh, we're doing $10 billion in housing. Oh, perfect, but the enemy good again. Um, but at the end of it is someone who doesn't have a fucking home. Yeah. Like, or, or a renter being evicted because they can't afford the rent. And eventually people notice that. Eventually they notice, like, the go- oh, the government keeps saying we're doing something, but my life keeps getting worse. So I just think that they, they have forgotten that they're meant to be representing people at the, at the other end of this, which is why I think... It feels so important to fight back against a lot of this bullshit. Fuck yeah, it is! Oh my god. I mean, it, it seems like a two, two-prong critique. It feels like in the media what's played out is this idea that the Greens are saying this is not enough houses. And it's not enough houses because you've talked about the shortfall. But this other critique you're saying is like, no, it's not even going to do the thing that they say it's going to do, which doesn't seem to be interrogated at all by the, by the media in any way. Um, quick questions for me. Who, who does, who, so who will own the houses at the end if they are indeed built? Who actually owns them? Uh, a combination of like property developers and consortium with community housing providers and a few community housing providers and NGOs. And there's no plan for public housing for the government to own any. Not at all clear. They haven't been able to commit to a single number of public homes. I mean, they one of their weird bank accounts, this is so boring, is called the COAG Reform Fund, but they will refuse to tell us how much money they'll put into that and they said maybe that might be able to build a bit of public housing. But to be perfectly frank, 
uh, given that a bunch of state Labor governments right now are selling off all their public housing as quickly as they possibly can. Brilliant. Um, I doubt that that's what that'll be used for. Yeah, right. All right, now just just quickly, I've just I've got I've collated some of the best Labor brain responses uh, to this critique. I thought we could sort of quick fire move through them, and that's okay. Like I'm on Twitter again. This is direct. <laughs> this is Twitter live on stage, everybody. <laughs> Once again, I have a lot of spare time. I will fight you in the replies. Uh, this is a combination of the government themselves, and I also listened to an episode of the week on Wednesday, Friend of the po- friend of the Show. That's uh, Van Baderman, Ben Davison's uh, podcast. I recently did a, a, an episode on why the Greens are so wrong on housing. Viv Van Baderman? Oh, yes. Yeah. Very good. Um, <laughs> we used to be friends. She officially blocked me on Twitter last oh, week. Oh, really? It's over. Uh, some people say that it's a, it's a mark against my name that I wasn't blocked until now, that I must have been doing something badly. Oh, yeah, a bit of judgment of the room. Fuck it up. <laughs> okay, so we say, hey, you're gambling on the stock market with this fund. Anthony Albanese says, I've seen some of the absurd comments speaking about gambling. If that's the case, they must be horrified at the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and what it does. They must be terrified about superannuation. Now, we do have a critique of superannuation. It's a privatised pension. Fuck you. But... Is it not true that in some circumstances this fund structure has been effective or successful? What would you say to that? It's sort of comparing apples and oranges. Like, I think there is actually quite a good critique of the super system to be made that, like, it screws over women, it screws over low-income workers because the entire system is designed on you earning a high income for a point and then you only get what you've put in at the end of it, which screws over a lot of people. Putting all of that aside... uh, on the one hand, you have this thing that's only meant to pay off once at the end of, like, 30 years. On the other, you've got this thing that's meant to provide money every year. Yeah. Now, traditionally, with health, education, social services, um, politicians' wages, nuclear submarines, stadiums, the government, what they do is they get money out of the budget, and I can't believe I have to explain this to the media, <laughs> but you get money out of the budget, and then you put it towards the thing that you want to do. Um, at, And this is the state of the political debate in Australia at the moment. (laughs) On the other hand, you have this thing that um, when the economy is going down, so in an economic downturn, say during the GFC, where people's super accounts did lose a lot of money, or when people are losing their jobs, or when inflation is high, traditionally, those investments in the stock market do really badly. Now, you would presume that in moments when the economy is doing badly, people need homes. So why would you set up a thing that does badly precisely at the time when you want to invest money in the thing. Like, you're like, okay, imagine if this was set up during the GFC and instead of the government, and the government had set it up and it got to the GFC and the stock market tanked and the dumb, stupid $10 billion housing fund uh, lost like 30% or whatever the hell it lost. In those, proceed- in those years afterwards, they'd have to say, throw up their hands and say, sorry guys, the fund's not doing well, you don't get a home. Yeah. Precisely at the moment when people need it. So it, 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 even on its own terms, it does not make sense to have a thing that only does well in the years when we least need to build public housing. For instance, like right now. And right now we've seen really high inflation uh, and low economic growth. And so the future fund lost a bunch of money, like $7 billion in a year. Now, uh, the crazy thing is, is that even there are the future fund people are like, oh, yeah, well, we've got a temporary expectations for the next 10 years about how this thing's going to go. Now, one of the reasons why, this is a bit complicated, but it's important to know, uh, is so if you have a $10 billion fund, one of the rules of the $10 billion fund is every year it has to maintain what's called its real value. So that it's $10 billion plus inflation. So if inflation is at 7%, say, that means next year a lot of its returns have to 
you have to get the returns it made and then add it to the $10 billion. So say it becomes $10.7 billion. Uh, so weird, weirdly, in any given year, the fund will be spending more just maintaining its own existence than it will be on building housing. Not to mention that investment managers uh, in the future fund last year got paid. So these are the fund managers. Uh, they got paid $300 million. $300 million. Um, the cap on the stupid housing fund is $500 million. <laughs> um, so I, I just cannot emphasise enough how, like, I think literally the only reason that the media haven't interrogated this more is because they think they have this implicit trust of the major parties. Right. Like, you couldn't possibly have announced something this stupid. There has to be <laughs> something, something undergirding this that makes this make sense, yeah. which obviously doesn't. Um, to the critique that, you know, these are not enough houses, 30,000 houses is not enough, uh, Van and Ben would say that, you know, well, that's, that's just the constraints. That's, that's about supply. We're obviously hearing a lot of shit going down in the building construction industry. Um, you know, uh, materials are very expensive. The labour is expensive. There's a labour shortage. So the number they've come up with is, I guess they would argue, achievable and deliverable given supply constraints in the state of the construction industry. What would you say to that? Firstly, it's amazing. Imagine being that people on that podcast and like your job basically is to try and justify leaving millions of people in homelessness and housing stress. Anyway, putting that aside. Um, the, um, so in any given year, the construction industry in Australia will build between 150,000 and 200,000 homes. Even during COVID, at the peak of constraints on the construction industry, the, the Australian construction industry built somewhere between 150 and 200,000 homes. Uh, what we're seeing at the moment is because interest rates are going up, uh, construction industry uh, and cost of construction materials have gone up a little bit. Uh, a lot of the private development industry is falling over. Not because there's not necessarily enough skills or construction materials, but because borrowing money to build is a lot harder now that it costs more money to borrow money. Now, what that means is we've seen over the last 12 months a massive decline in the private construction industry. Now, the construction materials and workers that built a higher number of homes about a year ago haven't gone anywhere. If anything, actually, with migration returning, we're getting more workers, which means that there's this latent capacity in the construction industry that could go towards building public and affordable housing. Now, any, if Australia builds between 150,000 and 200,000 homes in a given year, saying that the government should build between 20 and 25,000 of those homes as public and affordable housing actually is a very reasonable ask. And if you go back in time, mm. Australia... Uh, so. Into, if, it, if we were building the same number of public homes right now as we did, did during the 20th century, even under Robert Menzies, over the next five years, Australia would build 150,000 public homes, not 30,000. So we've done it before. We have the construction materials and skills ready to do it now. Uh, and it is notable to me, notable to me, and this is where I think you, you need to look, that the Treasurer keeps getting up and saying, well, we're gonna, what we need to do is relax planning regulations and um, offer tax incentives to developers so they can start building again. Because really, they don't care, give a shit about getting people into affordable homes. What they care about is maintaining the profitability of a property and finance nexus in this country that sees Westpac post one of its biggest profit on record uh, and property developers wield so much power over politics that basically they get whatever they want. So the reason that we're not seeing a big investment in public housing from the government right now is if they did that, they would whittle away at the power of property developers and banks. And that is the last thing they want to do and why we need to be dragging them, kicking and screaming towards doing something that actually helps people. <laughs> <laughs>
You so sorry. You so got your House of Reps on there. It was notable to me, Mr. Speaker. Notable to me. My just- notable to me. <laughs> My justification is I'm very tired. (laughs) (laughs) It was fucking great. All right, I'm sorry. I'm conscious of time. I do want to get to these last uh, couple of points. Um, The mix of housing, uh, social, affordable, public housing, uh, seems to be another uh, bugbear for Van Batten, particularly who went on the drum claiming that if you just want public housing and not social housing, what, you fetishize poor people and you despise the working class? I mean, this idea that, uh, yes, that we need to have a social mix of of housing and that the social and affordable housing have have a role to play and not everything can be public housing housing that is owned by the state what, what how should we think about these this question it's like again remarkable but whatever i mean <laughs> so the um i won't i won't take the bait i won't take the bait um one of the points we've made is if you build a lot of public housing one you can expand who gets to live in them so take um uh, australia i've talked about overseas a lot but let's take australia in the 20th century now there used to be this thing in, in lots of state and territories i'll take an example the south australian housing trust it used to build homes uh, for manufacturing workers, teachers, nurses, anyone who needed a home where they, where they worked. And uh, what was remarkable about that system was, and much like systems around the world, say in Austria or the Netherlands, uh, is where you build public housing and then you expand the selection criteria, this whole system becomes more sustainable. Because yeah. either you're paying your rent or mortgage to a bank or a property developer or one of you two landlords... Um, uh, <laughs> joking. All right, all right. <laughs> I, I was told I had to try and be funny. <laughs> oh no! Oh, was that me? I'm sorry. Did I kick over that? Oh, I apologize. Okay. Um, so sorry. Uh, or and someone insulted me as a landlord. I got angry. Yeah, I apologize. Yeah. Are you okay? I'm really sorry about that. Okay, apologies. Sorry, thanks. Fine. Um, or you pay that income towards a housing system that you can put back into building more housing. Now, the reason that public housing selection criteria has is shrinks every year. So in Queensland, for instance, one of the things they did to shrink the social housing wait list was not to build more homes, but was to sol- shrink the criteria about who was eligible. So they were like, it, there was a year, like, obviously in the middle of this bad housing crisis, the, the social housing wait list in Queensland went from 50,000 to 46,000. And there was this like, oh, look, we've shrunk the housing list. But all they did was literally go to lots of people and say, sorry, you might be destitute, homeless uh, and earning below the minimum wage, but you no longer qualify for public housing. That's and, and that is actually what, what we've seen is that governments from both persuasions constantly shrink the criteria for public housing. And then they allow people like Van Batten to do this. They say, oh, but look at this housing system over there. It's really concentrates social disadvantage. It's really bad. Uh, but they never have to justify why that happened. And it was because their own governments went and cut funding for it, restricted who could access it mm. to the point where they could use that as a justification to no longer fund it. Yeah. Great. Shame. Sign. Shame. <laughs> Um, the rent freeze, obviously, uh, the Greens are pushing for a rent freeze. This is a uh, two-year uh, rent freeze. Pressed on whether he thought a national rent freeze would be good or bad for the economy, Dr. Jin Chalmers said, my thoughts are we're better off trying to encourage supply. While we do that, we're better to try and take some of the edge off these rental pressures that people are feeling. That's why I funded in the federal budget on Tuesday night the biggest increase in Commonwealth rent assistance in three decades. How big was that increase? Uh, about a dollar seventy a day. Brilliant. <laughs> Yeah. That'll take the pain of it. So it's all being taken care of. But the argument generally is like if you freeze rents for two years, then that will, that will affect the supply. We, we have very record low vacancy rates across the country. Uh, landlords will get out of the market. And please think of the landlords. Um, 
how do we respond to this critique? The idea of freezing rents is, uh, is actually going to be bad. It's actually going to do more harm than good. Yeah, yeah, that's so, right. Um, so on the first instance, there is actually no evidence across, this is again boring, but a lot of the academic literature and economics that freezing rent increases does affect supply. In fact, it's just this thing that's said in the media and then no one is forced to justify if it actually ever happened. Um, so that's partly because, to be perfectly frank, property developers do not build homes to collect rents. Like in previous years, actually, um, rent is not the thing that they make lots of money on. They make lots of money selling the homes off the plan to property investors uh, and, and to first home buyers. And then they, in turn, don't make money really off rent. What they make money off is selling the home in a few years' time uh, and get a 50% discount on the tax they're meant to pay on the capital gains they make on it. Um, and... Uh, the second thing to say is every place where we have seen rent controls put in place, you've seen rents go down. So it does work right. um, is the second thing to say. The third thing to say is even if you take their argument on face value, which is the only way that we're going to build homes is if you pay an extra $200 a week on your rent. Like what sort of housing system is that? <laughs> like It's like, okay, guys, um, we need to build more homes. Time to turn the dial on the rent. Um, <laughs> The treasurer is there, like, turning the dial up, like, all right, well, we need 10,000 homes here. All right, you pay. You guys over here, you pay an extra $300 a week on rent. It's like, really dial it up. Like, that's clearly a sign of a broken housing system. And then the final thing to say is just on supply. Now, this is a lot of bullshit that's put out there uh, all the time, and it does make intuitive sense. Um, there was this great moment, by the way, during the Senate estimates um, a few years ago where this coalition senator was questioning the deputy governor of the Reserve Bank, and he said well, I think housing is a lot like oranges. And um, if there's not many oranges, uh, then the price of oranges is going to go up. So why don't we just get more oranges, as in build more supply? And then it cut to the Reserve Bank deputy governor, who's not our friend, by the way. Um, they're not, like, they're not, we're not ideological allies. And she had her head in her hands. She's like, Senator, houses aren't like oranges. <laughs> um, uh, and the basic point is that right now in Australia, over the last five years, we have built just under a million homes. We are building more homes per thousand people in Australia right now than we ever have in the history of this country. And yet, for some reason, rents and house prices keep going up. Mm. And in fact, on the night of the census, there were a million vacant properties across the country. Mm. Um, and that's because the problem isn't supply of private housing. Like, property developers have built lots of homes in the past and, and, and in fact... Uh, over the last 20 years, we've oversupplied the housing market by about 500,000 or 800,000 homes. Uh, the problem is that housing is treated as a financial asset. Yeah. And um, when you have chronic underinvestment in public and affordable housing, which means that whereas in the past it used to provide a competitive option to the private rental market, if you didn't want to pay $600 a week to live in a mould-addled-like closet uh, and you said, well, I don't want to do that, I can go and move into this public home, that forces the private rental market to adjust. We don't have that anymore. We also have a series of tax concessions that um, in this year's budget alone will cost $16 billion in, prop in capital gains tax concessions and negative gearing. Like we have a policy system that provides $16 billion of subsidies to property investors but doesn't spend a single extra cent on public and affordable housing. And the government's out there going like, oh, why is this housing crisis happening? <laughs> um, so I, I think... You've got to get some more oranges That's in it. And it, is and it is convenient, isn't it? that the argument from the property industry is you need to give us more power. It's sort of like, yeah, we've screwed it up to this point, but if you just let us do that a little bit more. <laughs> um, and, you need, and you need to be careful of that because that is the argument they'll run. They'll say, 
oh, the reason there's not enough homes is because you haven't given us enough power, as if they haven't had literally everything they wanted for the past 20 years and put us in this situation in the first place. All right, now I know. He's great, he's great. No, there's no time. We have no time. We all want to applaud Max. I'm sorry, I've just got to ask a few more questions. Are you still with us? You still into this nerdy shit? Oh, I'm learning a lot. (laughs) Are you going to sell one of the houses? No, I won't sell them. (laughs) I'll give them away. Oh, yeah. Thank you, comrade. Okay. Um, there's been a few hypocrisy charges. There's a whole NIMB- NIMBYism debate. I'm actually going to park that. I think we need to do a whole episode on the, the Greens' relationship to NIMBYism, the, you know, the good, the bad, and you know, the legitimate arguments that are there. Uh, the hypocrisy charge when it comes to Greens MPs being landlords has been doing the rounds. There was an uh, article in the Fairfax Media, the Greens MPs who would lose out from the party's property tax changes. So it's a story about how if what the Greens wanted on property tax concessions, these people would lose money because they own multiple properties. But they do point out that the biggest Property owners are Greens Treasury Spokesman Nick McKim. He has four houses or properties. Deputy Leader Maureen Faruqi has four. First-term Queensland MP Elizabeth Watson-Brown has three, while the spouse of Justice Spokesperson, as Spokesman David Shoebridge, owns three investment properties. That article did not mention that you're a renter, by the way, which is quite fucking annoying. Stephen Bates is a renter as well. Yeah, I think it's me and Stephen and one other person in Parliament of the over 200 politicians are renters. The only renters um, in there. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, look, a lot of this is presented in bad faith. The whole hypocrisy charge is a little bit bullshit, and I think the fact that these politicians are advocating for their material circumstances to get worse should count for something, for God's sakes. But do you think this is a problem for a party? Is it a bit of an awkward visual to have MPs in there who own multiple property investment properties as, as a sort of political strategy, I suppose? Yeah, look, I mean, I think um, should we get more people, um, I suppose, from that class of people that are underrepresented in politics, in particular people who rent and, and don't have assets and really the definition increasingly the definition of class in Australia these days uh, is has much more to do with asset ownership than it has to do with your job sure we do I, I do think it misunderstands how power works in politics like if for instance everyone from the Labor Party was made to sell sell their um, uh, investment properties do we think that overnight all of a sudden they'd say yes now's the time to get rid of negative gearing and capital gains tax concessions and start taxing the banks fairly no mm. because um, I think there's this conception of politics and it's mostly by this like sort of liberal small l liberal ideology that is um your politics is informed by your own experience entirely and actually the way power works in australian politics is the labor party as an institution uh it has uh via donations via revolving door between uh political representatives and uh you know lobby groups down the line and also just by this broad ideological capture of the Labor Party that sees its interest and the national interest as increasing profit margins for big corporations, Um, forces and and corrals the Labor Party into becoming an institution that does just function in their interests. Mm. And, um, like, you could have a a, a renter even as uh, the next Labor Prime Minister and we'd be having the same debates about housing policy right now, except probably we'd, we'd say we'd hear the Prime Minister say lots of times, like, as a renter, I think we need to, main- <laughs> like, we need to maintain capital gains tax concessions and negative gearing. <laughs> and you'd be sitting there being like, ah! <laughs> um, so, look, um, yes, we need, of course we need more sort of that representation, but functionally, power works um, via organised social classes, um, grouping their interests and recognising they share a collective interest and, and, and putting that power on Parliament. Now, right now, property developers and banks are really bloody good at it. Um, like, for instance, Anna Bly, who uh, managed to force the government to turn around 
uh, on a deal they'd struck with the Greens to impose million-dollar fines on bankers. She turned it around in a day. In a day. That's what power is. And so power on our end has mm. to work out how we organise uh, the rest of us in a both in terms of allies but also as a social class who recognise we share more in common and then divides us and use that as a power block to impose ourselves on parliament. So next time Anna Bly rocks up, the major parties know that on the other side there are millions of renters and, and you know, mortgage holders and people who want something different from this country who are going to push back the other way. Yeah. We'll get together and go to parliament. Yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> What do you mean get together? I mean, like, as, as landlords. Oh, I see. <laughs> the landlord I'm not party. a landlord. Me I neither. do not identify as a landlord. Neither do I. <laughs> Me neither. I will say Nick McKim said that he's uh, one of his, uh, the, the third property he has, he, he's, he's renting out a property to a, um, a family member as well and their rent is frozen and all the, the landlord greedy MPs have frozen the rents of their, of their tenants. He also said that one of the properties is a paddock which we are rewilding, what, rewilding which was just the most green shit I've ever heard in my life. It's like... Yeah. Yes, I own property, but I'm also saving the earth. That was good. Um, Anthony Albanese is uh, currently raking in $115,000 a year in rental income, FYI. So that's a bit of fun. And <laughs> in this article, it said, Mr. Albanese's climb up the property ladder began in 1990 when he bought his first time in Marrickville for $146,000. Fuck you! Okay. <laughs> Uh, okay, I'm, I'm sorry, I am conscious of time. Let's talk about the politics then. What has been happening with the negotiation? What has the negotiating over this housing fund been like? We've been told you're actually you know, talking to Julie Collins as a housing minister and you're negotiating over this stuff. Where are negotiations at in terms of the Greens' position on the half? Well, obviously, if you've been following it publicly, not super far, um, they still, like... Uh, <laughs> I forgot what to say. Uh, the, um, look, functionally, basically what's happened is that they still have refused to offer even an extra dollar in guaranteed investment in public and affordable housing uh, and refused to even come to the table on coordinating national rent controls or any form of national rent controls. Uh, and uh, as a result, we have said we want to keep negotiating until you start treating this like a negotiation. Mm. And... Um, one of the things you hear in public a lot and from commentators is, um, well, uh, Labor needs to uh, uh, needs to implement the agenda and we've got a mandate uh, just under a third of the national vote and this is a mandate for us to do whatever we said we'd do at the election, we just get to do. Well, if they wanted to do that, they should have got a majority in the Senate, which they don't have. <laughs> and so... Um, and... <laughs> and... and um, there's this idea, right, that, like, Sometimes in the media and the public they'll say, um, oh, uh, oh, well, Labor's never going to offer any extra money, so you just have to accept that, as if we're negotiating with toddlers. Yeah. Like, it's like, no, the Labor Party very mad. They were, they're not going to say yes to that. Yeah. And it's like power, power concedes nothing without a demand. And um, I think one of the things we're trying to prove is uh, that it shouldn't be acceptable that in the worst housing crisis in generations where this, this same party just wave, like just locked into the budget tax cuts that will see them all get an extra $9,000 a year. It shouldn't be acceptable that we just roll over and say, yes, thank you, Labor Party, for your uh, bizarre $10 billion series of bank accounts that will spend more in, in any given year, may spend more on investment manager fees than it does on housing, and just accept that as a given. And, and I think part of the reaction, I think, to a lot of our campaign over the last few weeks is a lot of people... Um, at least maybe resonating with the fact that uh, I think a lot of the reason people switch off from politics is because uh, they hear on the media and the news that the scope of what's possible narrows every day. Like, you have to be happy with scraps, basically. Mm. And 
uh, I think one of the things we're trying to do and one of our roles as a, as a movement is to expand the scope of what's considered possible in politics and start to give people hope again. Because uh, I said it in that speech, they're trying to crush our hope, but it's true in the sense that what they're trying to do is you should not ask for more, and if you ask for more, you'll get attacked and called stupid and bad. Mm. Uh, and uh, you're actually illegitimate for asking for more, and you're crazy and you'll wreck the economy. None of that is true, but the more you hear it, the more people are demobilised and less people will hit the streets and join a political movement that might actually start to demand something. What they're doing is wish fulfilment. They're saying, we hope that you, th- you feel stupid and dumb for asking for more. We hope that you, won't, uh, that you think that anything the Greens push for is crazy and illegitimate. And the more that you think that, the more power they build. And so part of our, what we see our role in these negotiations, one, is to try and actually get a good deal. Like we don't, want to, we don't think we're going to get $5 billion a year to invest in public and affordable housing, but we'd like Labor to meet us halfway. Yeah. And a negotiation isn't us saying, what about $5 billion, and Labor saying zero and then attacking us in the media. Mm. Uh, and we're not going to accept that. What was on that piece of paper that Anthony Albanese handed to Adam Vant <laughs> in Parliament? Uh, <laughs> um, Drawing of a dick. Yeah. <laughs> my, my, look, my favourite um, of the Twitter memes that emerge out of that. I'm I, not sure I can answer that question specifically, um, but my favourite Twitter memes was just that one that says, "Do you like me? Yes, no." <laughs> <laughs> um, but unfortunately, I my can't friend wants that to go question. out with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Okay, you can't say. No. Okay. But what? What if you did though? <laughs> Uh, lock, look, lock the doors. I, I will say, yeah, look, um, I, I, I will say what it wasn't. It wasn't a, 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 an agreement to invest billions of dollars extra in housing or anything like that. <laughs> what, what an exclusive here at Serious Danger. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, what did Jackie Lambie secure from the government? That, that seems to be bullshit. Were they dudded? They seem to get this uh, secure. They were very happy with. They're now lashing out of the green saying, fucking pass it. People, roof over their heads. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so, sum up their case. Did there, they get anything there? There was an amusing moment where um, under questioning, I think it was either Jackie Lambie or Tammy Tyrrell, like the journals put to them, they're like, you know, that this is just a cap and that cap's not even indexed. And then she went, oh, I didn't realise it wasn't indexed after agreeing to the plan. Anyway, um, although Labor have said now they'll index the cap, not the minimum spend, which there's none, the cap from 2029, um, which I'm sure gives a lot of comfort to people currently sleeping in their cars. Um, what they secured was uh, they said if the fund builds 9,600 homes, if, then no guarantee, then 1,200 of those homes will be in Tasmania. But there's no guarantee that we'll even reach that. So they've just said that if the fund builds 9,600 homes, Tasmania gets 1,200. Now, one of the crazy things is at the same time as this is happening, the federal government is cutting funding for 1,020 affordable rentals in Tasmania. So they're about to lose 1,020 homes as a result of a funding cut made by the federal government mm. and then they might, might get 1,200 homes in, in some uh, up to 2029. So, look, um, I think potentially they were sold a dud. Uh, if they think that that's going to touch even the sides of the housing crisis in Tasmania, given they secured no guarantee in funding and no guarantee that even 1,200 homes would be built, uh, then I think they have another thing coming. Uh, and it is sort of unfortunate that they've sort of devolved into just um, lashing out, but whatever, you know, um, they're the Jackie Lambie network. Yeah, right. They can sleep at the footy stadium, can't they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Well, this is the crazy thing. They guaranteed 
money for the footy stadium, but they can't guarantee. Like literally, there's more money guaranteed for the footy stadium than there is for housing. But anyway. How good's footy? Footy. <laughs> Uh, last question. I mean, Albanese said he will happily go to the next election over this issue. He will take this, which I assume the Greens would be up for that fight on housing and pointing out and explaining between now and the next election how shit this housing deal is and why we voted it down if we didn't do that. Uh, there's talk of a double dissolution trigger as well to bring on election. I mean, I guess I know you're limited in what you can say, but from here, where do you, where do you think this is going to roll out and what should we be ready for? Well, look, we are genuinely pushing. It's like we're constantly reaching out to the government, trying to push them into negotiating. And um, one of the things that the way Canberra breaks people's brains is it turns um, things that matter to people's lives into political games. And that the Prime Minister could come out and say, oh, yeah, well, we'll just... If this fails, we'll just won't do it and then we'll take it to the next election. Yeah. As if he's moving a fucking pawn on a chessboard. And, and, and our point to them is that is a clear sign you're not taking this seriously because waiting until 2025 to do something on the housing, a substantial in the housing crisis, just abandons millions of, of people to misery and eviction because they can't afford the rent or waiting 10 years for a social or affordable home. And so, yes, the, our first, a lot of our energy and why you see me around all this place and why we're door knocking is we're trying to push Labor into getting a deal. Mm. Uh, but we have made clear to them that we will not just wave through this plan as it stands. Yeah. Like, we've already said that. We've said that again and again and again. And what was remarkable that last, in the last Senate week, we said, like, on the, one of the mornings where we were trying to meet with the government, at the same time, after we'd said to them we couldn't support as it stood, they were trying to um, gag debate in the Senate and just force the entire thing on for a vote, knowing it would fail. Yeah. Because for them, it's a political game and it's a, a pawn on a chessboard. And I think for everyone here, by the way, you'll get caught up in the political debate, you'll get caught up in the attacks and you're like, oh, that sounds really nasty. But I think the thing to remember is that the reason that we're fighting is to put a roof over someone's head. Mm. And the reason they're fighting is just to destroy the Greens and get a political win. Uh, and uh, if we can tell enough people that and enough people start to realise that, then I know who will win this fight ultimately. But keep in mind that they will do, the property developers, labour, um, their sort of allies in the media, will do everything they can to make you forget that there's over a million people in this country without a social and affordable home. They want you to forget that and what they want you to think is, oh, does this play well for the Greens politically? <laughs> forget that for a moment. Forget that for a moment and remember that... We're down, we're down there and our movement at the doors at the moment across this country is fighting for uh, redistributing wealth just a little bit to the extent that at least everyone gets a home that they can afford and live in and not have to feel stressed about. And on the other side, they're fighting so they can ram through a plan that, gives, that may give an extra $20 million in investment manager fees but won't guarantee a cent in funding for housing. The Greens have beat for Griffith. Max Chandler-Mather, everybody. So good. Geraldine fucking Hickey, everybody! <laughs> Michael the Griff Griffin, everybody! Thank you so much for coming out, everyone. We love you. We'll see you again. See ya! Well done, Tom. Geraldine, thank you so much, mate. I appreciate it. I'll have a quick chat to them, but you but thank you very much. I thank Max, thank you so much. One more time, everybody. Bye -bye. For wonderful guests.
Oh, thanks, you guys. I'm sorry, I know we went long there, but that was fucking amazing. Thank you so much for being here. Again, I want to say I'm so sorry that Emerald couldn't make it. She sends you love. She apologizes profusely. I also want to let you know, you might have seen this little flyer here. I'm sure lots of you know about Ben Pennings and the uh, campaign for Dad versus Adani. That's a QR code. If you can chip in some money, they're suing him for $17 million because they're cunts, and all he did is protest them because we're in a climate crisis, and he's fantastic. Please check that out. I'm doing a show tonight at the Tivoli at 7.30 p.m. I'll see you there, baby. And uh, there are three or four tickets left uh, there's so many more than that and if you'd like to come I would love to see you there uh, we want to do more live shows of Serious Danger thank you again for coming out on Sunday afternoon I hope you liked it we'll see you again Good night. Serious Danger